And we're starting a new series tonight. Uh, We're starting a series on the Sermon on the Mount, arguably known as the greatest sermon of all time ever preached uh, by our Lord, our Master himself, Jesus Christ. And by way of introduction tonight, uh, we will read. We will read. We will read all of the Sermon on the Mount. So I hope you found your place. I hope you found Matthew chapter 5. We're going to go from verse 1 all the way to chapter 7, verse 29. All right? Follow along. This reads God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to turn quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put to prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, 
Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on, and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your heaven, from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our, our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, Wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, if, the, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly fathers knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And thus reads the very living word of God. What marks someone as the citizen of the United States? Is it the ability to vote? Uh, The certain rights a person has in this country? Uh, Or the ability to own property? As Christians, there's a better question we must ask ourselves, and that is this. What are the distinguishing marks of the citizen of the kingdom of God? Jesus Christ is king. He is our king. He makes clear that this world is not our home. And we are sojourners, aliens, wanderers, moving from one country like the United States to a better kingdom. And so we must keep in mind, although we presently live here in the United States of America, this country is not our ultimate home. But we are citizens of a better country, the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description, Jesus' distinguishing marks of this citizen, who he or she is, what he or she believes in, and the subsequent life that he or she lives. Uh, In short, if you just get one thing out of tonight, the Sermon on the Mount is about what it means to be a Christian in Jesus's kingdom. And so today, just for today, I want to set the stage, I want to give us a background Uh, Because the Sermon on the Mount is just three chapters in Matthew's Gospel out of 28. It's just one sliver of a larger picture. And it's just one teaching. And like I said, it's arguably the greatest teaching, the greatest sermon ever recorded by Jesus. uh, The goat, as some of you like to call it. Uh, But it's set in a, a context. There is a framework. There is just a piece of the whole. It's just one part of Jesus' life that Matthew is trying to portray to us, the reader. So, quick background. Uh, The book of Matthew is roughly broken up into five different parts. Uh, There's an introduction and there's a conclusion. And so what we're trying to to study tonight, uh, chapters one through four, is that introduction. It's the advent of the king. Christmas is coming up. Y'all know about Advent. Uh, This means that the king has come, and his name is Jesus. Uh, Matthew opens with 
if you haven't noticed already, a genealogy. Turn, just turn, flip over there, a couple pages over to Matthew chapter one. It's a genealogy, meaning the ancestry of a person. Um, and Matthew provides with us Jesus's ancestry. And when you look at that very first verse, you will notice two major Old Testament names. Matthew chapter one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David and Abraham. David is significant because he is what? He is the chosen king of Israel uh, to whom God has promised that the kingship will never depart from his family line. Abraham is significant because God has promised to Abraham that from him, from his descendants, a people will come forth that will be a blessing to all other people. Uh, These promises are known as covenants. At certain times in history, God has made promises to certain individuals that he will keep. Uh, David and Abraham are two key individuals that God has chosen to make promises with. So when you read the Old Testament, don't, don't dismiss the Old Testament from your Bibles. When you read the Old Testament, know that God moves and acts based upon these promises that he makes to his people. One major promise is that there will come a savior uh, or a Messiah. Uh, he will come and deliver his people. He will be king over them. And he will reign and restore Israel to its former power and more. Uh, And all the promises of God found in the Old Testament will be fulfilled through this Messiah, through this Savior King. That's in the Old Testament. Fast forward to Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew is saying that through this genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is this Messiah. Jesus is the king that Israel has been waiting for. And so when you read Matthew chapter 1 through Matthew chapter 4, you will notice that Matthew will use, for some of your Bibles, it might be an all caps. For some of your Bibles, it it might be a special mark. But he will use Old Testament quotation after Old Testament quotation to show what? What is he trying to prove to us? He's trying to show us that all those Old Testament quotations are prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies. And most importantly, he is the fulfillment that this Messiah will come and he is that savior. He is king. Jesus is king. If you want to sum up the entire book of Matthew, just three words, Jesus is king. And yes, Kanye West copied Matthew, all right? And so we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. How does this sermon, this one teaching, three chapters relate to this big picture idea that Jesus is king? Um, Like I said in the beginning, this sermon, Jesus is talking about citizens in his kingdom, who they are, what they're about, what they do, what they believe. This sermon is about the people of the kingdom. So, Tonight's just an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at chapter 3 starting next week. So for our introductory sermon um, that will lead us up into the Sermon on the Mount, I just want you to notice and keep in mind just three background realities. Three background realities that prove to us that Jesus is king. All right? And if you're taking notes, here, here they are. First, 
Jesus speaks to true believers. Jesus speaks to true believers. Second, Jesus speaks in the present tense. Jesus speaks in the present tense. And last, Jesus speaks with absolute authority. Jesus speaks with absolute authority. So let's look at this first point. Jesus speaks to true believers. Look at chapter five, verse one and two. Seeing the crowds who went up on the mountain, when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying. By this point, uh, Jesus has already garnered a following. Uh, people have heard of his, his healing ministry, his, his casting out of demons, um, his restoring of sight, uh, of lameness, of leprosy. Uh, and throughout all of Judea, people are coming to flock and see Jesus, either for healing, uh, for restoration, uh, or to see the spectacle. And Matthew notes that crowds, seeing the crowds, Matthew notes that Jesus notices the crowds are starting to form. And Jesus identifies these crowds. And he sees now is the prime opportunity to teach. If you notice, every time Jesus heals, every time Jesus does something miraculous, he never leaves it there. He always captures that opportunity to teach, to teach, to instruct, to tell people what God's word actually says and actually means. And so he takes this opportunity to go against a mountain and he sat down and what does it say? The disciples came to him. And it's the disciples. It's a small detail in the text, but I want you to understand that when you study your Bible, when we look at scripture, details matter. Details matter. The Sermon on the Mount is meant for the disciples. There are two groups of people right here, if you notice in the text. Um, the crowds who are on the, the periphery, on the outside, kind of just off to the side and kind of just like watching, seeing what he's gonna do. And those who are the disciples who've drawn near, who's come close, who've sat down and is leaning on Jesus' every word. Uh, the term disciple means student or follower or a dedicated learner to a certain teacher. Uh, Jesus is that teacher and he's about to teach those who are truly committed to him what it actually means to follow him. So being a disciple is synonymous with being a believer. You have to believe what your teacher is teaching you, unless it, it means nothing. Then you're on, the, you're on the periphery, you're in the crowds. And this makes sense, because as he begins to teach, look at what it says. It says, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, who is this them referring to? It refers to those who are wanting the teaching. To them, to the disciples. This makes sense because as you continue reading the Gospels, whether it's in Matthew or Mark, Luke or John, any one of the disciples, uh, the Gospels, Jesus' teaching will become slowly more and more difficult to hear, more and more difficult to receive. At one point, he'll say to the crowds, he'll say to his disciples that unless you partake of my flesh, you have no portion with me. And so that, for some people, is just like, what in the world is that? And so Jesus spends his time with those who are truly committed, to those who are true believers, those who already trust in faith, 
who take Jesus at his word, that he is who he says he is, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what we'll learn is that if you are not a true believer, what Jesus says will mean nothing to you. If you are not a true believer who placed your faith in Christ, these next couple of months will mean nothing to you. What is the chief difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? It's this. It is how you receive the word of God. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is you either hear, believe, and you obey the word of God, or you disbelieve, and you don't hear, and you disobey the word of God. There is no middle ground. You cannot straddle the fence here. And so what I want you to consider and what I want you to self-examine in your own life, in your own heart is, do I value and do I trust God at his word? That is the starting point. Does God's word have supreme value and importance to me? Or or is it just some collection of books, 66 books put together that has fancy moral sayings in them? That I have to read, you know, I have to do my devos because my parents and my youth leaders tell me to. That's what I do. That's my, what my family does. I don't want to go too far on a tangent, but side note on devos for you guys, devos. Uh, devos or uh, devotional for short are only valuable to you if you are devoted to the one that you're studying. All right? You're very devoted to your studies, to your athletics, to your extracurriculars, to your friends, to your family, but are you actually devoted to the one to whom you are devoting for? All right, that's my little, my little spiel on devos, if you wanna know. And because your honest answer when it comes to do I value the word of God uh, will tell you whether you are a Christian or not. Uh, because the Christian he, will she, he or she will say this, something along these lines, where I know I might not perfectly treasure and obey God's word um, because I'm often distracted, because my flesh is weak, uh, because you know, I, I have so many other cares that I'm wrestling through. Uh, but I know how important it is to me. I know how important Jesus is to me. And because from God's word, I've heard and I've seen who Jesus is, right? Jesus is addressing those kinds of people. Not perfect people, but imperfect yet faithful people who believe in him. Um, He'll talk about the law. He'll open up part of God's word and he'll clarify the purpose of the Ten Commandments. He will challenge you and me on how we receive the word of God and how we apply it. And all that can be done in the life of a true believer. So you must ask yourself, do I truly believe in Christ? Do I truly Believe in this gospel that a holy God in divine, infinite love 
condescended, taking on the nature of man so that he can live the life that no man can ever live and die the death that every man deserves. So that those who believe in him, who believe in his life, who believe in his death, who believe in his resurrection may have now a reconciled, renewed, restored, born again relationship with him. Do you believe in that? Because whether, you, or whether or not you believe in it will dictate how you respond to this sermon series. Whether this time will be profitable or not for you. Because where you stand in terms of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, will send you on two different trajectories in your life. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. You have your whole life ahead of you. And where you stand and how you respond to the gospel, how you respond to God's word will dictate what the rest of your life will look like. Um, Paul says that the natural man, the non-Christian, has no inclination, no desire for the things of God, for it is worthless to him. Uh, But only those to whom God has granted illumination or understanding by his Holy Spirit, um, those who are truly born again, true believers, are the ones who can fully appreciate understand and apply God's word. And so this brings us to our second point, our second background reality, that Jesus speaks in the present tense. This is just a grammatical observation. Um, When you look at the entire Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 through 7, you'll notice that all of Jesus' commands are done in what? Are done in the present tense. That means you must obey and you must listen to them now. It matters to you right now, in this present moment. Um, His words, although spoken 2,000 some years ago, apply to your life right now. Following Jesus at his word is in the here and the now. Not the later, not tomorrow, not sometime in the future, but now. Uh, So don't think that this sermon does not apply to you. Because you don't believe. You have to believe. Jesus is calling you to repent and believe and respond right now. Um, How that plays out specifically is unique to every person. I know that. God has made you unique with different personalities, with different temperaments and different families, with different gifting, all of that. But scripture and the principles of scripture apply nonetheless despite who you are. And so this is the attitude uh, that I want to cultivate in you, in us, as we study through this section of Scripture. Uh, And it will help you study and apply the rest of Scripture because this will touch upon um, a particular doctrine of Scripture called the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. This means that the word of God alone is sufficient for your life. Uh, It's enough to lead a life of godliness. You do not need self-help books. You don't need um, other people to tell you to love yourself, to treat yourself. You don't need other people or other religions to tell you how how to think or how to govern yourself. Why? Why? Why is the word of God sufficient? Because for the true believer... The word of God is our ultimate authority. Uh, It's the very words of God. Meaning, if God is all-powerful, he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, he created all things, he's our Lord, he's our savior, he's our king, 
what he says goes. There's no ifs, there's no buts, there's no coconuts, whatever. What he says goes. God is that supreme authority in our life. Um, All other things on earth that has authority, meaning your parents, your teachers, your pastors, uh, your government officials, your kings, your presidents, your dictators, whoever, they derive their authority from God because God has given it to them, has apportioned it to them. And so through the word of God, you can come under, you must come under its authority. Uh, You're reading, what you read is the very words of God. And so when you read this sermon and you see a command that is in present tense, um, understand that he's speaking to you and he's calling you to obey. If you're a Christian and if you're a true believer, not only will you hear the command, but you will want to obey it. You will want your life to live your life for King Jesus. And you will want to follow his every word. And although you don't do it perfectly, right, deep down in your heart of hearts, you know that what he says is not only true for you, but it's also good for you. And this relates to our last point. Jesus speaks with absolute authority. Turn to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What is going on here? The crowds, those who are on the periphery, were astonished at the end of the sermon. Why? Because in their minds, they thought that Jesus was just a man. Uh, that they didn't believe that he was God incarnate, God with us. They were astonished at the authority that Jesus exhibited when he opened the word of God and explained it because Jesus had explained it with an authority that they have never seen. And there is only one chief reason for this, for this kind of wielding of authority. That is... Jesus is God. Jesus is God, very God. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This means that Jesus is very much God as he is very much man. 100% God and 100% man. There is no mixture, there's no fusion, but he is equally true of both. And this is something we're not going to go into and I'm not going to divulge because it's a mystery that, you know, we can spend hours and hours and days and days and all of eternity studying. But this, the point is this. Jesus possessed the same authority as God because he is God. Jesus is able to calm the storms, heal the sick, restore the sight to the blind because whenever he commands the waves and the mountains and the diseases and the demons, they obey because they know that he is God. And this is the very problem that he has come to solve, that he has come to address because when he commands man, when he commands you, what happens? Man looks at him and says, I will not. I will not obey you, Jesus. I will not obey you, God. 
I will rebel against you. I will sin against you. And I will love every bit of my sin. Jesus has come to right this wrong and to restore his authority in the lives of man. And that's not to say that he's lost his authority, but he's come to reclaim the ground that the man refuses to give. And that is true for the believer because Jesus humbles you, does he not? He humbles you and he makes you understand who he is and who you are, that he is a big God and you are a small, small person. He is greatly to be praised and you are not. John the Baptist said he must increase and I must decrease. This is the reason why Jesus has come. This is the reason why Jesus preaches what he preaches. The Sermon on the Mount was preached to show what it truly means to follow him, to come under his authority. And to, similarly to an earlier question, how do you respond to God's word? The question you must ask yourself is, how do you respond to Jesus's authority? Because they are virtually the same. They are synonymous. Jesus is king. He is the king of everything. He is the king of you. He is the king of me, whether we like it or not. And as we begin to study this awesome, beautiful text of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, keep that thought in mind because that king, Jesus, is speaking to you right now as you read, as we open his word. His kingdom is here. And he is here to teach us what it lives, what it means to live in his kingdom. And we who call ourselves Christians, we are living in his kingdom when we claim that we know him. Guys, I am so excited for this study. I'm excited because I know for a fact that this sermon will help you in the day to day, in the grind in going to school, going to class, doing homework, playing and practicing sports, so on and so forth, relating to your family, relating to your friends. It will help you because it will help you understand who you are in relation to who he is. Who he is. What is he about? And hopefully at the end of it all, you will see for yourself that you can follow him, you will follow him better with a greater excitement, with a greater passion, with a greater love because he is worthy of it. Jesus, our king, the king, is worthy of your entire being. Let's pray. Father God, you are glorious and mighty. You are great and greatly to be praised. And even though you are so vast and so wide and so large that our minds and our hearts cannot fully comprehend and fathom your character, you meet us in the man God, Christ Jesus. So may our study for this school year be glorifying to him, that his name would be lifted up in our lives. God, help us to follow him. 
because you show us and you tell us that following him is so worth it because he is worthy. Thank you for Christ. And in his matchless name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. That is Sermon on the Mount. We've started something. And schedule says we won't be done until mid-June. So I hope you're, you're ready. I hope you're buckled in. Um, and hopefully you're ready to learn and to see Christ. All right? Have a great night. You're dismissed.